to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. And welcome to Season 15 of Civil War Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich, bringing you the original Civil War History podcast. Tonight, we share the adventures of a United States Naval officer who served aboard Ironclad, spent time in Confederate prisons, made repeated escape attempts, and ultimately found himself in Ford's Theater on the fateful night of April 14, 1865. In I Held Lincoln, A Union Sailor's Journey Home, Author Richard E. Quest tells the story of Lieutenant Benjamin Loring, and he tells us the story behind the book tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. It's the first show of our 15th year, hard to imagine, uh, here in August of 2018 on the campus of East Carolina University, looking out of my office window in the Brewster Building, 
Not, however, speaking for East Carolina University or anybody else, just myself, as always, and my guests will do the same. It's a new season. Classes have started. It's a new academic year. Uh, welcome, listeners. Hello to everybody in history. 3225 here at ECU. No surprise quiz tomorrow, but please do your reading. It's time for a new sports season. The Pirates are back in action here on campus. Women's soccer has already gone undefeated in its first four games under a new coach. Looking good. Uh, The football team springs into action this weekend. Hope uh, springs eternal for them after two miserable years. Maybe we'll We'll see things improve this season. We can always hope. And the uh, my alma mater, Michigan, goes to work against Notre Dame this Saturday. We will or will not refer to that next weekend, next week. Uh, hello to uh, everybody listening, and of course, especially to Civil War Talk Radio's number one fan, my mother in Michigan. Uh, my brother Greg is staying with her at the moment. Uh, I hope you're both able to hear this. You've rigged something so mom doesn't have to go all the way down to the basement to turn on the computer. Uh, Hello to everybody who saw the webinar a few weeks ago in August of 2018. It was good to hear from old friends of the show and welcome new listeners. It has been quite a summer of 2018. There are many things I could talk about for uh, the whole hour tonight. I won't do that. But let me run through four quickly. Uh, First, Civil War Institute. I talked about it last season at Gettysburg College in June of 2018. It was great. If you got to go, you know how interesting and stimulating it was. If not, sign up for next year's. You do not want to miss it. I was able to record uh, two programs while there with people who were attending and presenting or or. Uh, just as being there at the Institute, and you'll hear those played over uh, this coming season. I'll introduce them live and then play the recordings of people. I also got to meet a lot of people, line them up to do live shows this fall, so it was a very, it was definitely a success. Uh, Second point over the summer, thank you for all the feedback, emails that you have sent in. Uh, I learned, for example, Uh, since last season that a uh, a Fresnel lens, which was the subject of our discussion of the Cape Hatteras lighthouse during the war, turns out to uh, also be used today. The the Fresnel lens is used in theatrical lighting, and uh, while not as critical perhaps as it used to be, it's still out there, so the name is still there. You learn something every day. Uh, Also want to clarify in a rant I launched last season about Uh, high school history being taught by the football coach. Uh, That was not aimed at history teachers who also coach. Uh, I've also coached youth sports, and I think it's a great thing. It was aimed at schools that don't bother to hire uh, appropriately trained and qualified history teachers. And a happy update on that score is that the local school where my wife works has, in fact, hired someone who knows something about world history to teach it this year rather than pressing Emily uh, into service to teaching history along with being chair of the English department, something that would have not been appropriate. So good move to the local school. Third quick summer note, uh, Emily and I spent two weeks this summer seeing Europe via the Band of Brothers tour offered by Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, a history tour based on the 
506th Parachute Infantry Regiment, uh, subject of Ambrose's book and the HBO series. The tour is thus a World War II version of this hallowed ground, the Civil War tour that I will be leading in May of 2019. And it was truly a powerful experience. There really is no substitute for uh, seeing the ground when you're learning any kind of history. So I want to send my thanks out to our historian on that trip, Chris Anderson, who's collected many personal stories from survivors of the, the 506th Parachute Infantry. Uh, he really led us on a wonderful experience. And I'm excited now about this hallowed ground and learning uh, from the experience of being a guest on a tour. I hope it will rub off and help me improve what I do as a tour leader. And I hope you can join me in May of 2019 when we go to battlefields in Virginia and Maryland and Pennsylvania. Fourth and finally, uh, last August in 2017, I opened the season by sharing my commentary on events that had just taken place in Charlottesville, Virginia, centered around memorials to the Confederacy. This year, the news I'm sure all of you have read by now concerns the Silent Sam Confederate Memorial statue on the campus of University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which was pulled down by protesters in August of 2018, a few weeks ago. My first reaction when I heard that was that while I have long joined the consensus on UNC's campus that the statue no longer belonged where it was, I was sorry that it was removed in that fashion. I don't approve of breaking the law, even to make a political point that needs to be made. My second reaction, however, was to think I should probably go back and reread Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail because I had the nagging feeling that my reaction was making me exactly the person that King was calling out in 1963. And here's a part of what he wrote. I must confess that over the past few years, I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, quote, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. Yikes. He's talking to me reminding me that there is a time and place for direct action and civil disobedience, whether it's Rosa Parks on the bus or the Greensboro Fort at the lunch counter or the Patriots in Boston throwing the tea in the harbor. In all those cases, the time and place came only when alternative methods were shut down. Otherwise, breaking the law as, as your first recourse isn't civil disobedience, it's just vandalism. So, was there another recourse here in North Carolina? The governor recognized uh, and expressed his sympathy for the local majority in Chapel Hill and the university administration as well that all wanted the monument moved, at least taken off of its current location. But the will of the local community was thwarted by the state legislature, which passed a law taking away the power of local communities to do anything about monuments in their in their towns. Only only the people in Raleigh can do that now. 
Now, one could argue that the legitimate recourse, therefore, would be to change the state legislature. But look at North Carolina. It's a purple state. It's half red and half blue. It voted for uh, Clinton, then it voted for Bush, then it voted for Obama, then it voted for Trump. Uh, it currently has a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature. It's a 50-50 state. But the current majority, when it took power, redrew the state legislative districts to give itself a veto-proof supermajority and redrew the congressional districts to give itself a 10-3 majority. They made no secret about this. The legislator who drew the 10-3 districts was asked, why do you do that on a 50-50 state? And he said, I did it 10-3 because I couldn't figure a way to make it 11-2. There's no secret. And as a result, federal courts have twice invalidated those districts, confirming the belief a lot of us have that democracy isn't being allowed to work in North Carolina. The current majority is trying to rig the system so the, the other party can't get a word in. And I acknowledge that when the other party was in power, they did the same thing. But two wrongs are not making a right in this case. So after rereading what King said about white moderates being all pious about, oh, your cause is good, but never break the law. I realized he was talking to me. So, yes, I continue to advocate obeying the law in the effort to move Jim Crow statues and monuments from sites of power and put them in sites of historical relevance instead. Direct action should not be undertaken lightly in these cases or it's just anarchy. King said, one who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. And the people who took down Silent Sam did it openly, did it, I presume, from love of their campus and desire to see it free of symbols of white supremacy. And I assume they are willing to pay the penalty the law will impose. And if they do that, I think history will look back at them one day with sympathy and understanding and as for their opponents, who ultimately are going to lose the fight to preserve Jim Crow monuments, uh, historians one day will ask them the same questions we ask today about slaveholders of the 19th century or segregationists of the 20th century, which is how can otherwise fundamentally good and decent people be so blinded by the racial customs of their day as to accept what future generations can see with such an obviously flawed position? Now, many of you may not agree. And I recognize that. You may not share my historical understanding of the purpose uh, of many Confederate monuments, not those on battlefields, but those in sites of local power. And I remain open to discussion and debate about this. Try to follow the example of Abraham Lincoln, who said, I shall adopt new views so fast as they shall appear to be true views. So let me know what you think. I'm happy to hear all sides of the story. So, Finally, to this season of Civil War Talk Radio, the whole season is listed on the Facebook page, Impediments of War. It's kept up to date by Mark Gaffney. It's on the Impediments of War website. Uh, just let you know the next couple people coming up next week, Daryl Black, Executive Director of the Seminary Ridge Museum at Gettysburg, recorded this summer on site of his museum. I'll play that for you. On the 12th of September, Mark Smith, author of The Smell of Battle, The Taste of Siege, A Sensory History of the Civil War. Uh, that's a recent change, if you've seen the, the earlier schedule. And on the 19th, Hal Jesperson, Civil War cartographer. You've all seen Hal's work in one book or another. So check that out. Uh, 
I've taken way too much of our guest time. Let's bring him in right now. Uh, Richard Quest, author of I Held Lincoln, A Union Sailor's Journey Home. Uh, Dr. Quest, are you there? I am. Jerry, thanks very and much. It's a pleasure to speak with you this evening. Well, welcome, welcome to the show. And I, uh, I warned you in advance I would go on at excessive length this evening, and I apologize for doing that. Um, uh, so, in fact, as, as I feared might happen, uh, we're almost at the first break. So let me just ask you uh, just a quick background question about you before we get into your your work here. Uh, when you're not writing about uh, Benjamin Loring, what do you what what's your day job? What do you do when you're when you're not doing Civil War writing? Well, I'm the I'm the founder and executive director of a nonprofit organization called Books and Homes, and we provide uh, under-resourced children with free books of their own choosing to take home and build their home libraries. So we work in six states right now, um, 87 locations. Uh, currently, uh, provide books to about 25,000 children. Wow, that's an admirable enterprise and. Uh, uh, you're talking to the right audience tonight, people who are interested in books, and, and maybe uh, before we're done, be sure and let us know how uh, listeners can uh, support your organization. So let's let's not start and cut off. Let's take a break a little early and jump right into the book after the break. So we're going to take a short moment to get some messages played, come back and talk with Richard E. Quest, author of I Held Lincoln, A Union Sailor's Journey Home. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea. To Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. 
the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Richard E. Quest, author of I Held Lincoln, A Union Sailor's Journey Home. It is the story of uh, Lieutenant Benjamin Loring of the United States Navy, and uh, quite a remarkable story. Let me start at the beginning. Uh, how did you learn about who who is Benjamin Loring? How did you come across this this person's story? Well, it's... Um an interesting story, and actually, uh, I, I could take it back to some of your comments at the beginning of the show, where you're talking, you're talking about uh, high school history teachers and football coaches and so forth. <laughs> um, so, having been a having been an 11th grade U.S. history teacher in upstate New York myself, although I was a soccer coach, not a football coach, mm-hmm. um, but certified in, you know, to teach United States history, um, I found myself in the early 90s uh, standing in front of that group of uh, 16, 17 year old students, wondering. How am I going to garner their attention? I mean, mm-hmm. you, you go in, you stand there, um, these kids are looking at you, and uh, oftentimes what you're, what you're going through and, and uh, delivering in the classroom is history about somebody else somewhere else. And so I found myself very early on uh, looking around the, the local area with, throughout the county for um, local history that I could bring into the classroom infuse into that New York State uh, Regents curriculum to make things more interesting for students. And in the process of doing that, going to the local historical society and libraries and museums, that's where I came across uh, the story of Lieutenant Benjamin Loring, um, a local historian in the town of Owego uh, in upstate New York, uh, had mentioned to me that, hey, did you ever hear uh, about this uh, local Civil War uh, veteran, a sailor, uh, he was at Ford's Theater the night Lincoln was assassinated. And by the way, his, the frock coat that he was wearing that night is in the local museum. And it's alleged that Lincoln's blood is on there because he, came, he didn't just witness the assassination. He actually uh, allegedly came in contact with Lincoln. That he climbed up into that presidential box and rendered aid to the president and then helped carry him across the street to the Peterson House. So that's originally um, how I came across that story. So the, uh, I mean that that gives us. Uh, well, let, let me start by saying this: the uh, I think it was Bennett Cerf who famously once said the 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 best-selling book one could write would be one combining three subjects everybody's interested in, which at the time apparently was doctors and dogs as well as Lincoln. So Lincoln's doctor's dog would be like the perfect bestseller. Uh, I held Lincoln is is our title, and is, and we'll talk about that as we go forward, especially the your your research on that. But I'm going to say 85, 90, maybe more percent of the book uh, is not about the Lincoln incident. It's about the fascinating career that Loring had uh, in the Navy and in Confederate prisons. That's but right. But I guess if you if, uh, so, so uh, 
So, so is I held Lincoln uh, the right title, uh, or is it just well, irresistible? Well, <laughs> you know, you got a Lincoln connection. You got to play it. That, that's it, that's exactly it. And so uh, here I am talking with you tonight, Jerry. So um, I think it was the right title. Worked. That's right. <laughs> it worked. It worked. Exactly. So I'm I'm thankful for that. Um, you know, that's the that's the culminating uh, event in this uh, in this story. Um, but you're very correct. Eighty-five to ninety percent of uh, of the book is really about the events leading up to that, which are absolutely amazing. So Loring well, is, um, you know, he he's uh, in the in the Navy and commanding a, a tin-clad, the USS Wave, and he's uh, he's out in Louisiana on the Calcasieu River and uh, and does battle out there. So uh, just just to lead things off. So uh, an incredible well, well, story. It, it is even before that. He well, first is he from the area from from your neck of the woods of upstate New York. So uh, originally, no, he's actually from Duxbury, Massachusetts. Okay, that's where he uh, he's born. His family uh, had been there for many many years, and actually, I think there's a connection. I think that family has a connection to uh, Harvard University, actually. Ah, well, that's that's funny you should say that because I actually have a degree from Harvard University and that shows me <laughs> thank you for the softball <laughs> sure <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we don't get uh, we, we want to start out the season with the obligatory Harvard reference and get that out of the way for 2018 19 uh, uh, but uh, <laughs> moving forward um, the uh, uh, he also spends time in California, apparently, uh, before the Civil War. Uh, he does. He's um, actually he's a young man. Uh, he was a bit of a, uh, I'll use the term rebel, uh, in, the, in the sense that he was, um, he was not necessarily going to follow in the, uh, or follow the direction that his parents wanted him to um, and, and head off to college. Instead, he, he as a very young man uh, in his uh, early to mid-teens, left and uh, went to sea, uh, but, uh, and, and spent many, many years learning uh, sea craft and, and becoming a very proficient uh, uh, sailor and, and having sailed around the world. But in the 1850s, finds himself in California as uh, not so, well, heading, heading out there to be part of the gold rush, not so much to uh, seek the gold uh, for him uh, in this case, but actually to support the miners out there. So he and his younger brother, Bailey, actually set up a business. And we find them in the 1860 census in the Sacramento uh, uh, area and out in the uh, Sierra Nevada mountains as uh, packers. They're listed, I mean, that's the occupation listed in the 1860 census as a packer. So they are leading uh, teams of mules and uh, supplying the gold miners in the mountains. Then you you start with a vignette uh, at the beginning of the book where he and his brother are reading the news from across the continent of the outbreak of the Civil War, mm-hmm. uh, and and that brings up a point that you touch on uh, a number of times through the book. Uh, what what was Loring's motivation to uh, uh, to leave California and and go fight for the Union? Well, he he tells us um, in in uh, his journal, his uh, the notes and letters that he leaves behind that you know the United States is very near and dear to him. I mean, there's a level of patriotism um, that uh, you know isn't necessarily felt by uh, his uh, uh, countrymen, uh, all of them for sure. And uh, he he has sailed under the flag of the United States around the world, and he has. 
he has seen many other nations and um, you know feels a feels a real sense of uh, duty um, and what he often refers to throughout the uh, throughout the book as some steadfast resolve to uh, report for duty. Uh, he feels it's his duty uh, to defend his country. So I think his motivation is, you know, we have a good thing going here. Let's not uh, let's not ruin this and tear tear it apart. Um, although he he does does say very explicitly, um, he is not a proponent of slavery. Uh, that uh, he he sees that as an evil institution and uh, realizes that um, you know the country is probably not going to survive uh, if that uh, continues. So there, there's a a mix, both the the cause of union as a political entity and uh, his his experiences, his exposure to how slaves are treated. Obviously, yes, uh, both yeah, both play a role there. Yeah. Now, when he when he joins, uh, as you mentioned, he had seen sea, service at sea in the past, so he he joins the navy, and it looks like he becomes an officer upon enlistment. He does. Um, you know, it's, uh, he decides that he's going to leave that business, it's a, and it's a very lucrative business out in California. Mm-hmm. He leaves that to his, his brother Bailey. He says, I've got to head back east. And uh, he doesn't actually get on a stagecoach in this case. He gets into a, a mail coach. You know, it's just a mm. big wagon full of mailbags, and he bounces back across the, the continent. I think it was 12 days uh, to get wow. back east and finds himself in, uh, in the Washington, D.C. area and lists, and uh, in this case, as an uh, acting master. So he's a volunteer. Uh, he has that uh, previous uh, uh, service in, in, uh, uh, on the sea, and uh, the Navy recognizes that, and so in this case, they make him an officer, a master. So let's talk about his, his naval career. Uh, the... One of the scenes you portray is when he's serving uh, in Charleston Harbor aboard uh, an ironclad ship, and they are dueling with the Confederate batteries on shore. Mm-hmm. And it, it's quite a vivid picture that the, the uh, these gunners, guns are just flinging cannonballs at each other, uh, protected from within a protected iron turret, but it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not an entirely safe place to be, I guess, is, is, is the impression it's I not, get from... No, no, it, it, it really isn't. And he's on board the ironclad, well, in this case, the monitor, the USS Weehawken. Mm-hmm. And um, so Loring himself, he is, he's in charge of the gun turret, and um, a distant cousin of his, John Rogers, is the captain in this case. Um, they head out toward uh, Fort Moultrie, uh, Fort Sumter, and Loring himself actually sights those, those first shots. I mean, he's looking down the gun barrel on the Weehawken and firing those first shots at Fort Sumter. So that's the first union, those are the first Union shots fired at Sumter since that uh, fort had fallen to the Confederates. And he goes into a lot of detail uh, in his notes and papers um, about that battle. And in the course of all of that, um, a couple of different actions there, the Weehawken actually runs aground, and they are, they are stuck. They are absolutely stuck, and they are taking a beating uh, from, those, uh, from the batteries in, in both of those forts. And it's not until the tide uh, rises that they're able to pull that ship off, off of that. And when you look at the uh, after-action reports in the... Uh, you know, the Confederate, uh, the Union and Confederate Navies, um, you know, the documents and, and mm-hmm. so forth, they all, there are many, many uh, accounts 
eyewitness accounts of, geez, you know, that USS Weehawken is out there uh, really, really being battered. At one point, um, the turret, actually there's a, there's a rope around the outside of that mm-hmm. that allows the turret to actually rotate, and a shell strikes that at the base of the turret and jams it. Loring actually has to crawl out uh, with, with an axe in hand and chops away at that rope as those shells are screaming past them. Uh, to free the turret, and then he climbs back in, um, so that they can they can continue in the action. So he obviously, you know, performs well in that role, doing things uh, like you just described, and he gets rewarded with command of a ship. Um, that doesn't work out as well. To talk about his experience as a as a, a captain of a ship. So he, um, for that gallantry in action, and uh, he is promoted to lieutenant, uh, again, acting volunteer lieutenant. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have those, we actually have those papers, those uh, promotion papers. Uh, I should mention that uh, Lieutenant Loring's uh, great-grandson, John Loring Ham, um, is in Pittsburgh. And uh, the family have, they have, uh, you know, preserved and protected these papers, so... You know, a lot of this information comes from those, those original documents and artifacts. But Loring takes command of the, a tin-clad in this case. I mean, let's face it, it's just a floating barge. Uh, stern wheel, a stern wheeler, uh, the USS Wave, originally named uh, the USS Argosy II, uh, renamed the Wave because there were two Argosies, so to avoid some confusion. And uh, he takes that down the Mississippi out into the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, it's... it's <laughs> It's a transport. It's meant to uh, take uh, cattle and uh, other uh, goods uh, up and down the rivers. So it's a shallow draft ship, um, basically no keel, a flat-bottomed, uh, four-and-a-half-foot uh, draft. Takes that out into the Gulf, uh, weathers a couple of very dangerous storms, and finds himself, his orders are to head out to uh, Louisiana, to the Calcasha River, and uh, bring back cattle and Union sympathizers. They're supposed to be out there, uh, provide some protection, bring them back to New Orleans uh, where, they will be, uh, will, where they'll be safe. But in May of 1864, I think it's May 6th, I believe, um, Loring runs into, along with his sis- the sister ship, the Granite City, run into a contingent of 350 Confederates coming over uh, from uh, Sabine, Texas. And um, the battle ensues. Uh, the Granite City strikes its colors very, very quickly after about uh, half an hour. Loring and his crew of about 59 men hold off 350 Confederates for an hour and a half. Uh, men were dropping right and left uh, with uh, some, some horrific wounds. Uh, nobody was killed outright, but after an hour and a half, Loring realizes that uh, you know, it, looks, it looks hopeless uh, to the point where um, he didn't have any coal. After repeated uh, uh, calls for uh, to be refueled, uh, he uh, had been refused coal for his boilers. So his ship is sitting there with cold boilers. Um, he did have a little bit of uh, driftwood in there that they were able to fire up, but as soon as they were able to bring up a little bit of steam, a uh, Confederate shell went through the boiler, and uh, that ended that. So essentially a sitting duck, uh, Loring ends up surrendering, surrendering his ship. Uh, he realizes that uh, it, you know, his attempts to continue the fight are futile. Not something so, that he wanted to do, and he tells us no. very clearly that he'd rather die a thousand deaths than, than have to do that. But he did give up the ship and sent to, uh, sent to a Confederate prison camp near Hempstead, Texas. 
Well, it, in terms of dying a thousand deaths, the uh, th- that's almost what happens. It seems in that prison camp, the conditions there are are not good. The uh, uh, anyone listening to the show has, has read accounts of Civil War prisons. They're they're all bad, and, and this one is no exception. But uh, Loring doesn't uh, doesn't just sit there. He he makes a number of escape attempts the uh two two attempts actually mm-hmm. and okay. uh, so the the first attempt uh in in the very early hours of july 5th so uh the battle occurs may 6th so if you can imagine uh a couple of months uh or six weeks uh, uh from then uh, having been cooped up in a uh, prison camp uh conditions are horrible uh, he decides he's he's got to get out of there so he and, uh, in this case, um, an ensign who had been serving on the USS Wave, uh, Peter Howard, who had won the Medal of Honor, actually, aboard the USS Mississippi, um, had been on the Wave. And he and uh, Howard, who he nicknamed Dedeau, Howard is of French descent, mm-hmm. and uh, they, they slipped through the, the walls of the, uh, of the camp. Camp Gross is the prison camp uh, outside of Hempstead uh, in the early morning hours of July 5th. And for 10 days, they make their way south. Uh, they're going to follow the various rivers, the uh, Neches and the Navidad and Lavaca rivers, and they're headed, uh, headed down the Lavaca uh, to Matagorda Bay is, is where they're headed, uh, ultimately, to make it to freedom. They almost make it. I mean, this is the amazing thing. Um, they, for 10 days, 200 miles, um, with very little food. Dedeau, in fact, doesn't even have any shoes. Uh, Loring has to make uh, some uh, moccasins for him. He uses his little pen knife that his sister uh, gives him prior to the war and uh, makes some moccasins for Dedeau. They swim across rivers, nearly drown. Um, you know, horrible, horrible heat, um, constant thirst. They borrow, if you will, a couple of uh, rowboats and uh, get very close to the uh, to the Gulf and, and the bay, uh, probably within 10 miles, based on the maps that I've seen and, and I've actually been out there and, and followed this uh, this route, only mm-hmm. only to be captured, recaptured, 10 miles from freedom. I mean, it's it's absolutely heartbreaking, especially it, it, when you read it, the original document. Well, I want to ask you about that in particular. Uh, it, it, it is like a movie script, how close they get and then fail. Um, yeah. We're going to take another short break. We'll come back talk more with Richard E. Quest, author of I Held Lincoln, A Union Sailor's Journey Home. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Richard E. Quest, author of I Held Lincoln, A Union Sailor's Journey Home. Uh, the Union Sailor is Lieutenant Benjamin Loring, captured in battle, Louisiana, taken to prison camp in Texas, makes a daring escape, traverses almost the entire state, caught just as he almost reaches the finish line. Uh, Richard, the question I wanted to ask you, you mentioned uh, the the original documents that this book is, uh, you had access to to write this book. And the, the document cited uh, essentially for every chapter is the, the personal log of, uh, of Loring. Did he write that at the time, or was that a, a post-war memoir? And, and where is the document today? Yeah, that's, um, it, it, it's a post-war um, journal, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, written in the uh, early 1890s. And with the idea that I think uh, Lieutenant Loring at one point wanted to publish his memoirs in, in book form. And um, the family, family have these uh, uh, documents, papers, uh, letters, all of it. And there are hundreds of pages of, of these uh, documents and letters. And um, the family was kind enough to um, allow me access to those for a couple of years to actually go through them, sort them. Um, take notes and and develop the book. What's really interesting is at one point, Loring did put together, um, I, I believe, a synopsis, a uh, summary of uh, you know his his thoughts, and he sent that to Putnam Publishing, mm-hmm. and um, he he did receive a letter back from George Putnam himself, um, just saying thank you very much, but I you know it's not really not going to fit with what we're doing. So, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate in that, in that respect. But very fortunate today that the University of Nebraska Press um, has been uh, kind enough to uh, bring this to light. So we're, we're excited about it. But, you know, the family has um, these letters, um, letters that had gone to uh, Loring while he was in the prison camp from his sister. On the envelope, uh, actually, it's written by flag of truce. And, off, you know, it's, it's there. Um, there are other uh, other letters and uh, all of the original orders. Um, it's amazing what they have. It's an absolute treasure trove. 
Well, in reading the book, then it made me wonder. There are places where you quote Loring, uh, you know, specifically, yeah. and he, he, when you do, he seems to have a real way with words. It's always some some very, uh, yeah. you know, eye catching phrase. So that made uh-huh. me wonder: was was the material not in a shape where you could simply publish his whole journal and then annotate it with? comments explaining things to the reader that that was that would have been one way to do it and Mm -hmm. yes i mean you could do that and my question would be then who's going to read it and Mm -hmm. having been that high school teacher that again at the beginning of the show that you you kind of alluded to um what i really wanted to do is bring this to a much larger audience and and present it in a manner that was um going to be a bit more palatable to the average person. And, um, you, you know, it's the kind of book that you don't necessarily have to just have this pension for history. It's like, geez, I've got to read that. Um, because this reads, I think, like an action-adventure story. And there are people that I know, uh, members of my own family, who are not big, um, not big into history. And they've mm-hmm. enjoyed the book, not, not because I've, I've written it. But because of the flow, because there's an adventure uh, component to it, um, and uh, it, it's, not a, it's not that traditional history of, you know, this general moved his troops here on this date, and there are X number of casualties, and, you know, here are the tactics and the strategies and so on and so forth. This is, this is about a, um, an ordinary man who lives in those extraordinary times, and um, you know that's that's what we want to get across. That uh, there's there's an everyday person, everyday man component to the Civil War, and um, you know hopefully the everyday person today will enjoy enjoy reading this. Well, it it is definitely a page turner. That I I will say as I was reading it. Thank you. Uh, in, in the first couple chapters, I'm reading it, and and you, there are references, and but the references are all. Uh, or essentially all to the log, uh, yeah. to, to Loring's yeah. own log. Yes. So yeah. as I'm reading that, I'm thinking, well, hmm? you know, as a historian, I'd be curious to read this guy's own words and, and see mm-hmm. what he thinks. Right. But right. if that that what you're saying, would that make a longer book than, than what you have here? Yes. Yes, it would. Okay. It would. Substantial. I see. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Substantially. And, of course, it's written in, in 1893, a lot of these notes, and uh, right. it's written in that 19th century prose. And, exactly. you know, the average person today, to pick that up, they're going to read about a page of that. It's like, yep, that's great, and put that right back down. So uh, I think that that's down the road. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I've had those discussions <laughs> with the family. We're, we're talking about uh, those letters and the papers and so forth. They'll make some decisions um, here in the next uh, few years about uh, where all of those uh, documents belong. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that there is. I think there's another book for, uh, with just that, uh, annotated with, with the notes. Um, I also think that there's uh, potentially uh, another book with just the letters. The, the family has discovered, I think it's 87 letters mm. that Loring uh, writes to his sister, uh, Lily during the mm-hmm. course of the war. And I can tell you that I've, I've just now started some research for the next book um, because Loring gives us detailed, detailed uh, information about the Battle of Drury's Bluff in 1862 when he's on mm-hmm. board the USS Galena. 
mm-hmm. and um, and provides some new, I think, some new and interesting insight and perspective uh, because he writes he writes those letters immediately after that battle, and then mm-hmm. talks about life on the James on the James River. Well, I think you would find an audience among people listening to Civil War talk radio mm-hmm. for that kind of production. As I said, when when I was reading the first few chapters, I I found myself thinking, well, you know, why not just let Loring speak for himself? But right. as I kept going, right. um, the, the sentences tend to be short and declarative, and the chapters are short. And I found myself turning page after page, and even though I know from the title uh, that he's going to survive right. to 1865. After he's recaptured, uh, as we talked about in the previous segment, he makes a second escape attempt, which fills uh, a large part of the book. Right. And the adventures just go on. And even though I know how it ends, uh, <laughs> I'm still turning the page going, oh, you know, watch out for those guys. Oh, you, right. you better stay in the swamp. But, and it, it, it's a, it is a page turner. Um, Jerry, it, thank you. N- I, I take that as a huge compliment coming from you. Thank you so much. Yes. Well, it, it, it's... It, it's it's aimed at a different audience mm-hmm. than perhaps me or or many of us listening, but that doesn't mean it wasn't a lot of fun to read, um, and and uh, and and you know you want to see how these guys make out. Are they going to are they going to get away? Um, let me ask a different question. Uh, was in your view, the the commander of the the prison camp, I think it was Gillespie, was his name. Yes. Uh, is he a war criminal? Well, so I'm gonna I'm gonna let Loring answer that. Okay. And Loring Loring would say, based on based on what I've read and some of the letters uh, later on, that he he actually at one point. Um, Refers to Gillespie as um, I got to get this right. Shirts like so the commanding officer of um, Andersonville. Um, mm-hmm. He refers to him as being similar in mm. in nature and the way mm-hmm. that the men were treated. It's it's late in the war. They're they're in Texas. Um, you know, resources are are short on both sides. Let's face it. And I think that the way the men were treated, um, with regard to resources and rations and so on, um, you know, it's hard to it's hard to make that decision. But when uh, when Gillespie moves the camp uh, because there's a yellow fever outbreak and, and he wants to wants to get out of the path of of uh, of that disease, uh, and he puts these men in the swamps and and so forth. There's I, I don't see the reason for it. There are no mm-hmm. walls. These men are in such bad shape, they, they really can't escape anyway, and there's nowhere, nowhere for them to go. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a level of, um, I, I has a, well, I think there's a, a certain level of revenge, um, and I'll, I'll show you. And uh, Loring, throughout his papers, uh, does, does quote uh, Gillespie on, on several, several different occasions. Where he, um, you know, he says, "I'm going to make it hot for Loring, specifically. Uh, you, you're the senior officer in the camp. At uh, at one point, um, you seem to be the instigator behind some of these other escape attempts. I'm going to make your life miserable, um, and not just for Loring, but it seems seems to be that way for uh, for many of the other men. But um, as you stated earlier, you know, none of the none of the prison camps, north or south, uh, were, were places that any of us would have wanted to have been. So. 
But it, it, I did get that impression from from the book that, that Loring thought Gillespie was engaging in, in needless cruelty in some of these he, occasions. He did. Um, he does say that. Yeah. Let me push on. We just have a minute or two, and a question that gnawed at me throughout the book. Uh, and one of the escape attempts, the the guys take with them as food a five pound corn dodger. And a corn dodger, in my experience, is a hush puppy that's about the size of your thumb. Uh, what what do you interpret that to be, a five-pound corn dodger? So they they took whatever corn meal that they had, and, and Loring refers to it as chicken feed. So I think mm-hmm. there was a lot of grit and maybe some sawdust mixed in with whatever the corn meal was. And his messmates, they all contributed uh, their, their ration of this corn meal for a week or ten days and they, they stored that up, and they, they made this gigantic, two of them actually, two of these huge corn dodgers um, that, that weigh five pounds apiece. I mean, that's, that's a pretty big corn I, I, I just have a hard time picturing how that would hold together or what it, what it would look I, like. But, I uh, don't know. I don't. I honestly don't. But <laughs> I had to ask that's the way he That's the way he explains it. <laughs> it he does. So... Um, well, there is, there is more in the last minute uh, appropriate to end with. He does end up in the presidential box at Ford's Theater. He does uh, use the, the pen knife that is still in the family's possession, uh, I gather, to yes. uh, cut away Lincoln's tie, open uh, his neck for, for breathing. Did... Um, was, did you ever come to a conclusion about the blood stains on the frock coat? You mentioned in the book the uh, DNA testing was done. Uh, we did do. Uh, we we did take some samples. Uh, the blood from the DNA came back as inconclusive. Um, we did have. I was able to find some hair samples with some excellent provenance, and had two separate labs uh, actually test that. We have partial analysis, partial mitochondrial DNA analysis. Uh, some results. From both mm-hmm. of those, and and they don't contradict the story that that he was there with Lincoln. I'm guessing. No, no, and it and it really doesn't support it either. Um, that was that was the original intent was to prove forensically that that right. Loring had come in contact with Lincoln. I've not been able to do that. I uh, would love to talk with some other folks and and compare the results that we do have with maybe what uh, what they've come up with. But uh, that's a whole other story. Well, well, we've got just thirty seconds left. Uh, right, quick. What is the? Is there a website for the uh, Books and Homes USA Inc. that our, our listeners could go to? Yes, if they would go to www.booksinhomesusa.org, and they can take a look at our website. And uh, we're always looking for additional support and help um, uh, to provide books to uh, children in need. Well, that is a worthy cause, and uh, this is certainly an interesting book, and uh, uh, Loring sounds like an interesting character. Uh, good luck if, if you do the second book. I'd, I'd want to read that one, too. And, uh, Richard, thank you so much for being on Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, Jerry, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.